I've got a question for you today. What is your greatest need? Just stop and think for a second. Jesus. Jesus. She's more spiritual than all of us, right? I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times what controls our thoughts and controls our anxieties and controls our worries is something other than Jesus, right? We're so concerned about our relationships. We're so concerned about our kids. We're so concerned about our security. And there's other things that we would not admit here on a Sunday, but that we would admit that this is a great need. And at times it possibly feels like the greatest need. I don't know if I'm the only one here, but oftentimes I feel that way. I feel as though my greatest need is to be able to get that job and that paycheck and that security and those kids to get that wife. But you know what? It is times in our life when God just has a way of shaking things up to kind of open our eyes to reality of what our greatest need is. I had one of those moments back in January. I was sitting at my breakfast table, and if you know me, bags, eggs and bacon. It's what I love. Eggs and bacon. Lots of eggs, lots of bacon. We go through, I've got six kids, like two dozen eggs every morning for breakfast. A dozen for me and the rest for the kids. And uh, my daughter, Delilah, she comes up to me, and she goes, Dad, I'm choking. I'm in the medical field. I know, she's talking, she's moving air, she's good. So I say, why don't you go to the trash can and get that out? So she doesn't obey me. Children, obey your parents so that it may go well with you. This is practical application right here. She walks to the sink instead and she's sitting out there at the sink going, ah, ah, trying to get this piece of bacon out. Ah, ah. And as I'm watching her, all of a sudden, she just goes quiet. There's no more noise. She's completely dead silent. You see her still trying to get something up, but there's no, she's just sitting there like this. So I calmly get up and I start hitting her in the back and nothing's happening. And at this point, my wife's freaking out. My mom's there. I hear her yell, somebody call 911. I think the only thing she happened to do that whole time was unlock her iPhone. That's it. I hear my daughter, Noelle, screaming, and I start to see my daughter turn different shades. Little blue, little purple, immediately flip her upside down, and I'm just smacking her in the back. And my wife's sitting there at the bottom trying to scoop it out. And finally, by God's grace, we're able to dislodge that piece of bacon, and she was able to take a breath. You know, it's moments like that that puts all of life in perspective. For the first few nights after that, my daughter would have nightmares, and she would tell you that she would be sitting there dreaming, and in her dreams, she would die in her dreams, because she literally thought in that moment she was going to die. And as I was leading family devotions a few nights later, I was praising God that we had this experience, and my family's like, what? Are you serious? Were you there? But it's those moments that put life in perspective. You see, it's those moments that we realize our greatest need is not our relationships. Our greatest need is not any earthly treasure. Our greatest need is not any earthly joy. In that moment, my daughter Delilah, the only thing she cared about was living. 
The only thing she cared about was life. And church, today is a reminder that even greater than that physical life is our need for spiritual life. You'll look in your handouts and you'll see a text there, John 20, 30-31. And here the apostle John, the apostle of love, addresses what your greatest need is. Listen as I read. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What life is He talking about? I mean, all of you here today possess life. But that's not the life that John is talking about. In John 17, 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is the life that John is talking about. This is your greatest need, to know God and to be known by Him. And by knowing Him, possess eternal life. Church, there is nothing, nothing, nothing in this life could, that could ever satisfy your heart. You were created for this purpose, to know God and to be known by Him. And that is why all other needs are lesser needs. And this is the whole point of the Gospel of John, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have eternal life. And we see in our text in John, John 20 that there are many signs. And I love this because God doesn't call us to have some blind faith. He doesn't just simply say, hey, believe in me. I'm the Christ. I'm the Savior. I'm the Son of God. But in the book of John, there are actually seven signs that confirm the words of Christ. When you see in John chapter 2, Jesus changes water to wine. In John chapter 4, he heals the official son. In John chapter 5, he heals the paralytic by the pool. In John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 with fish and loaves. In John chapter 6, he walks on water. In John chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And in our text today, John chapter 11, the epitome, the capstone of them all, he raises Lazarus from the dead. You see, these signs are done for one purpose, that you would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in seeing that you would believe, and in believing, have eternal life. And it's not only the purpose of the entire book of John, but it's the purpose of John chapter 11. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 11, I'm just going to walk through a few verses. A great theologian, Daniel Salcedo, right there, said that repetition is the ancient highlighter. I don't know why, but any Salcedo phrase just sticks out in my mind. Synergism, ancient highlighters. Repetition. So I want you to see quickly that in this text that we're going to study, how often he repeats the word believe. In verse 14, he says, Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed? And in verse 42, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. In verse 48, if you let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. In verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who'd come with Mary had seen what he did, and they believed in him. Nine times. Nine times in this short chapter that we're going to read today, he repeats the word believe. Why? What's the point? It is because of this. Whatever you think your greatest need is, it is this. That you would see clearly that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that you would believe in Him to eternal life. And when many pastors have preached this text, and said, look at John chapter 11. Jesus takes a dead man, He resurrects him from the dead. Man, what power is there? Jesus is amazing. And just think what He could do for you. That stress, that anxiety you have, He can take it away. That singleness, that loneliness you're feeling, he could bring a relationship to you. Man, if you only believe. That illness that you have, he could take it away. That death, he could ease it all. And many preachers, they look at this text and they preach the power of God. But they preach the power of God in such a way that he's there simply to fulfill some superficial, lesser need. And they make God out to be more like Santa Claus, who is there to give you the desires that you have, rather than to display His glory. And they say, what love? That Jesus, the powerful one, wants you to have all the health, all the wealth, all the prosperity. Church, Jesus does care for us. Make no mistake about it. But don't exchange the lesser for the greater. The greater is not our physical needs here and now. The greater is our spiritual need to be reconciled with God, to be able to sit before God and know that He is your Abba, He is your Father, and you are His child. To know that He looks upon you and says, This is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Church, your greatest need is to know Him and to be known by Him. And that is the only way, listen, that you can have true life. For all the joys of this world, church, are simply a shadow of His goodness. Amen? Your greatest need is that you would believe. You see, Lazarus is going to be brought back from the dead, but Lazarus would go on to die again. His greatest need isn't to be resurrected from life. His greatest need is to be brought to spiritual life. We read earlier that we are dead in our sins. That is the condition of every one of us outside of Christ. And our greatest need is not physical life. It's spiritual life. Would you join me in prayer? That today as we look at John chapter 11, that we would see this as our greatest need to have spiritual life to know God and to be known by Him, and that only comes by faith in His Son. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. I come before you, Father, as a frail man, needing your grace, needing your strength today to proclaim your word. And I pray, Father, that it would not simply be my words, but that it would be your words. And that your words would pierce my heart and mine. It would pierce all of our hearts and minds. That we would see you and your son in a greater light. And that we would see your son clearly as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And in seeing him, that we would believe. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we looked at the overarching context of John, so that you would see Christ and believe. But before we get into John chapter 11, I want to give you some more immediate context of what's going on. So in John chapter 10, it's the Feast of Dedication. In the Feast of Dedication, the Jews come to him and say, hey, this is my paraphrase, what's going on? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ or what? And he's like, guys, I've already told you. I've already shown you these works. I've already performed these miracles. And these works I do not in my own name, but I do in the Father who sent me. And then he goes on to say something that just shocks them. He says, I and the Father are one. He tells them so clearly and plainly that he is the Son of God. And immediately they hear that. They're in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, and they pick up stones. And they're getting ready to stone Jesus. And I imagine it's kind of like that Homer emoji where he just slides into the shrubs. He dips out the back. He takes off. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes to the east side of the Jordan. So he's about four days journey outside of Jerusalem at this point. So when we get to John chapter 11, that's where he's at. That's where he's at geographically. But in the timeline, he's coming towards the end of his ministry. Interesting enough, I did not plan this, but this rising of Lazarus from the dead takes place about a week and a half before we celebrate his Easter, which is next week. It's not exactly a week and a half, but close enough, which is really interesting because here we have a dead man, Lazarus, and Jesus is going to rise him, raise him from the dead, bring him to a new life, and it parallels the death burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you get the geographical location, you have the timeline. Now let's get into the text. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. I love that right up front we have this kind of just like plain introduction of this man Lazarus. I mean, if I was writing this about some of you all, I wouldn't say a certain Chuck, a certain Danny Morrow, a certain Nick. It's like he's saying it as if this man Lazarus is just really no big deal. He's just some guy. And the reality is, as we look through, there are many Jews that come out for his funeral. He is well known in the community. He is a man that is loved. In fact, he is a man that we'll see in the next verse. He is loved by Jesus. But you know what John does here by starting off by saying a certain man? He's telling us today that the main character, despite what it says above it, the death of Lazarus, is not Lazarus. And then the main characters of this story are not even Martha or Mary or the Jews in the crowd. 
Make no mistake, they are characters, but they're not the main character. The main character in our story is Jesus. And they are in the village of Mary and Martha, and you know Mary and Martha. And they're the ones that love Jesus, that Jesus would go and feast with them and dine with them. Martha would be that busybody. She would be the one cooking all the meals, making all the preparations. Well, Mary is the one just sitting at his feet. And these are not strangers to Jesus. And these are people who are loved by Jesus. In fact, look at verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now we see that love even demonstrated. Demonstrated an act that I think would repulse all of us here, right? Anybody love feet? No? I've got two nurses right there, Monica and Michaela. Monica last week had the duty, the job of cleaning a patient's feet and they were not pretty. I walked out of that room going, Phew, so glad I don't have her job. <laughs> she was paid. She had to do this, it was her job. That's not Mary. <laughs> Joe's like, I'm not taking that job. That's not Mary. And th this isn't like feet in 2020 that are protected by shoes and socks. This is ancient feet walking in dusty, dirty roads. And this is Mary who loves Jesus so much that she doesn't wash his feet with her hands. She takes her hair to wash his feet. Man, what love. This is people who are love and dear to Jesus. So what do the sisters do? They sent someone to the Lord. This is from Bethany to the east side of the Jordan, about a four-day trek. They send somebody and say, hey, tell him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lazarus is not dead at this point. He's just simply ill. He's sick. And something shocking kind of happens in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Church, I love this statement here because it is so encouraging to know that his illness, that is, Mary and Martha are suffering. They're wondering, is my brother going to die? What is going on? They're no doubt going through some agony as all the what-ifs are just running through their mind. Can you relate? He says that this suffering is for the glory of God. This is not foreign to us. The same thing is said about the man who was born blind. You remember that story? The disciples come up to Jesus and say, hey, whose sin was this man born blind for? His or his parents? And what does Jesus say? Neither. He wasn't born blind on account of sin. He was born blind on account that the glory of God would be manifested through him. It's so encouraging to know that their suffering is not purposeless. And church, the same is true for us today. That our suffering is not purposeless. As we endure hardships, it is not without purpose. There is great comfort we see that in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things. Not only your good days work together for good, but your bad days. On those days when you get that horrible diagnosis, 
in those days when you lose a loved one, in those days when everything just seems so bleak and hopeless, God works those together for good. Do you believe that? Some of you are sitting there thinking like, I have no idea what he's talking about. My life is good. It's real good. And for that, I just say, praise God, I was once there. And as I've grown, unfortunately, I have realized that life is hard. You just experience it more as you get older. I used to have a pastor that would say, cheer up, you'll be there someday. I thought, that is so morbid of you. Why would you ever wish that upon us? But that's just the reality, right? We live in a prosperous country where we could have anything like that. And life feels like a vacation, feels so easy. Most of the time we're numb to how hard life is. We think that this is like Genesis 1 and 2 where the Lord looks around and says, man, this is good. And we forget the reality that we do not live in Genesis 1 and 2, but we live in Genesis 3, a time when all things are fallen, a time when sin and death reigns. And I don't wish any hardship upon anyone. But the reality is that as we go through life, Jesus, is prom Jesus promises that we will suffer. Why? Because sin and death reigns. But church, be encouraged that your suffering is not pointless. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. Now right here, we're kind of faced with a dilemma, right? He says, man, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So what does he do in love? He stays on the east side of the Jordan and he waits till a bad situation gets worse. I think a lot of us would think that's counterintuitive. Right? Like, I love my kids. I love my wife. And when I see them in pain, when I see them suffering, love compels me to try to put an end to that suffering. Love compels me to try to want to solve that suffering, to minimize that suffering. And that's not what we see here. It says that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so what does he do? He waits. Some of us might read that and think, man, how cruel. Why would you just let them continue to suffer? Why would you allow that bad situation to get even worse? From Lazarus to go from being sick to being dead. Why? That doesn't seem loving to me. That seems like a malicious God, not a benevolent God. Why? Well, we've already seen part of the reason why. It is because this is going to be for the glory of God. And church, what that means, it is because this situation is going to manifest, is going to show more of who God is. It's going to put more of His character on display. More of His love and grace and mercy and faithfulness. More of His compassion. And church, to see more of God, I can't imagine anything more loving than that. You're probably not convinced. You probably think, nope, the most loving thing is to end my suffering. It's not to see more of God. I'll get there one day. Right now I want my suffering ended. 
That's just because we're short-sighted. We think so much of the temporal and we forget the eternal. It's because we're only thinking about the here and the now. But I'm reminded from the Gospels. It says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Church, what does it profit you if your situation would be fixed, if your suffering would be ended, yet you forfeit your soul? What would it profit you if you had all the health in the world, yet you forfeit your soul? What would it profit you if you had the best perfect relationship that never ended, a man or a woman who loved you unconditionally, yet forfeited your soul? What does it profit you kids if God would fix your parents or parents, God would fix your kids, amen? And yet you forfeit your soul. You see, all the health and the wealth and the prosperities and the easy life here and now means nothing if you forfeit your soul. I mean, who in their right mind would exchange that which is temporary, right? James says, life is a vapor. <sighs> here, today, and gone tomorrow. You get that imagery. What does it profit you if you exchange that for that which is eternal. It's foolish. And so God, in love, does the greatest thing possible. Jesus doesn't end their suffering immediately. No, he allows them to endure just a little more. Why? So that he could reveal more of who he is to them. Let's read in verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go down to Judea again. So you remember from our geographical lake location, what happened there in Jerusalem? The Jews wanted to stone him. He fleed, went to the east side of Jordan. And now he's telling them, hey, we need to go back. And you can almost hear the fear of his disciples. I'm like, what? why would we do that? Last time we were there, they wanted to kill you. You can hear them, the fear in them. Verse 7, then the disciples said, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? Like, why would we go back? They want to kill you. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Huh? I mean, he kind of responds in a way that seems like a riddle, but it's not. I mean, we get this, right? Is it far easier to walk in darkness or in the light? The light. The light. Yeah, good job. Someone's paying attention. There's coffee in the back for you. Yeah, in the light. It's the very reason why I have floodlights all around my house, so I can see what's going on. It's the very reason why I have lights that go on timers in my house. Because when the sun goes down, I want to see what is going on. I want to be able to walk and not stumble. And Jesus, we remember from last week when Nick preached, he's pointing to a deeper meaning. Remember he said in John chapter 9 or 8, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me will not fall. He is the light of the world. 
And as the light is with us, we will not stumble, and he will not stumble. If he goes to Bethany to reveal his glory, there is no darkness that can thwart his purposes. He will accomplish his will. In verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He means dead. They would get it. We don't get it. Actually, they didn't get it. But it's kind of like us saying that my friend passed. He's fallen asleep. He is dead. But I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he had fallen asleep, he will recover. In verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And get this, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. I'm thankful that I wasn't there. For as you see this great work, his prayer is that you would believe. But let us go. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I don't know if you can hear it, but the disciples are no doubt fearful. This is doubting Thomas. You guys are familiar with him. He gets such a bad rap in, in the scriptures. But he's like, man, this is going to end in destruction. We're going to die. Let's go. Might as well do this. He's fearful. And you know what strikes me as I read that? What is there to fear? The Lord of life, the light of this world, is with them right now. Like physically with Thomas right now. What is there to fear? You see, the reality is human problems oftentimes crowd out divine presence. I'll say that again. Human problems crowd out the sense of divine presence. But I want to encourage you today that no matter how dark life seems, no matter what struggle you're going through, that the Lord of life, the light of this world, dwells with you. And that He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. I don't do this often, but one day, faced with great tragedy, great heartache, I knew not what to do but to open my Bible. And so I just went to where I knew the Psalms to be, praying, Lord, give me something that would comfort my heart. And I happened to flip to Psalm 46. I had no idea what I was reading, but the Lord knew exactly what I needed. It says this, God is our refuge and strength. Get this, a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. No matter how dark the situation may be, He is present with you. Therefore, verse 2, we will not fear. Oh, church, we might be gripped with fear. We might be gripped with anxiety and troubles. But I pray that we would take a lesson here from Thomas. What does he do? He says, let us go. Let us follow Him. We're going to die. Seems hopeless. But you know what? I'm so encouraged by Thomas. He didn't live in that fear. He wasn't paralyzed in fear. 
No, he goes and follows Jesus. So they start the four-day trek back from the east side of the Jordan to Bethany. And we get to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. So he got sick. Jesus waited. He died. And at some point, there was a big procession. And there would be paid wellers who'd come and kind of lead this as they would carry his body from the home to the tomb. And their only job would be to sit there and just well and scream as loud as they can. That's come and gone. He's been in the tomb now four days. And, and this is important for us because what we want to hear from this is that Lazarus is not mostly dead. No, he's dead, dead. In fact, this is so important because in the mind of most Jews, they, they would think that when the body was put in the tomb, that the spirit would hover above the body, hoping that somehow it could get back in the body and come back to life. And on the third day, the body would completely lose its color, and the spirit would be locked out and would have to leave. And so as that third day passed, and we come to the fourth day for the mourners, that means there is no more hope. This is a hopeless and bleak situation in their mind. And Lazarus is dead, dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, in verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. See, this was a man that was well-loved. I, I often think that you can kind of tell the influence of a man by how many people are at his funeral, right? There are many Jews here. And these aren't those paid wellers. These are people that love Lazarus, that love Martha and Mary. And they're there to console them. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21. And Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want to encourage you to not read that as a rebuke. Read that as somebody who's pleading, wishing that something could have been different wishing that her brother would not have died. This is someone who's saying this through eyes that are feared with tears and sorrow that has filled her heart. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God would give you. Man, what great faith the Martha that she knows that even God, Jesus, now, whatever he asks of the Father, he can do. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, there's two meanings here. One, he's speaking of the fact that, his, that Lazarus will rise right now. But Mary, Martha is thinking about the resurrection as a future event. That she knows that when Christ would return, that his body will rise. That Lazarus will live again. But Martha is missing exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that the resurrection will happen. He's not saying, I will do the resurrection. I will bring the resurrection. 
No, he's saying, I am the resurrection. And even as I say it like that, I am the resurrection. It should bring to mind Exodus 3. You know, when Moses is going to go before the people to Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. He says, who should I say sent me? And from the burning bush, God says, I am. What does that mean, I am? It means that he is the only transcendent one. It means that he is the only one that is the creator and sustainer of all creation. That he is the source of all life. And that is what the scriptures tell us, that all of creation finds their being in him. Because he is the only source of that. He is the I am. And Jesus here is saying, I am the resurrection. I am the only source for the resurrection. Not that the resurrection is some future event, some distant thing that is to come, Martha. But the resurrection is here now. I am the resurrection. I am the source for Lazarus' dead body rising to newness of life. I am the source and the power of your dead body, your perishable body, putting on imperishable. I am the source of your mortal body, putting on immorality, immortality. He is the source of that. He is the power of that. The resurrection is present in Jesus. And he says, not only am I the resurrection, but I am the life. I am the source of eternal life. I am the source of true life. It's not something to come. It is present here and now. Martha, do you believe it? And church, my question to you is, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? For he says, whoever believes in me, see, not some future event, but in him, who be- whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Church, do you believe this? Do you believe with all your heart, mind, and soul that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? I want to encourage you that if you do, if that is your hope, then as you die, it is simply a transition from life to greater life. And that is good news. But I want you to see that there is one qualifier here, and it's this, that you believe. You see, those that inherit eternal life are not those who don't smoke, chew, or go girls who do. There, there's no like action. There's no work that I need to do. It's not even coming to church. It's not tithing. It's not worshiping on a certain day. None of that is in the text. He says, simply believe. Do you believe? And if so, your death will be a transition from life to greater life. And if not, as you pass, it'll be from death to greater death. And I say that with no joy. 
But the word of God is clear that the wages of our sin is death. And that is a spiritual death. A separation from God for all eternity in hell. And it only makes sense if we lived our entire life, as Nick said last week, with this attitude that there is no God for me. If God has shown you his grace and his mercy, if God has shown you this work and you in your sin look back and say, no God for me, it only makes sense. But I would plead with you to not stay there, but to repent and believe so that you might live. In verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in that place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I want you to picture this in your mind. Here's Mary. She's lost her brother. And she runs out of the house and she falls at the feet of her Lord. And she is weeping. She says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. And when he said, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the text. And I ask you why? Why, as you have the picture of the Jews weeping, Mary weeping, why does Jesus look around, troubled in his spirit, start to weep? Is it because Lazarus died? I don't think so, because we already read that he knew that this would not end in death, but that it would be for the glory of God. Now Jesus is weeping because he's looking around and he's seeing the effects of sin. He's seeing the effects of death all around him. He's seeing the effects of sin and death be made personal with those whom he loves. Those whom he loves with a brotherly affection. And it pains his heart. I'm encouraged by this. You can see the Greeks would think that the gods would be apathetic, that they would have no emotion. But that's not what we see here in Christ. He is weeping. So we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. They're not foreign or distant. He is present, a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our time. Verse 36, so the Jews seeing this said, see how he loved him. They got that right. But listen to verse 37, but some of them said, could he have not opened the eyes of the blind man? And also kept this man from dying? You see, they're only thinking about those physical needs being met. So indicative of so much of our culture today. When we go to church simply to meet our physical needs, they miss the deeper need to see Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 
It's a hole in the side of a mountain, and they would put a big stone in front of it. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. And in verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. It's been four days. The body is already decayed, decomposed. Bacteria is already breaking down the body and releasing a sulfur smell now. This is going to be bad. It's going to smell. There's nothing you can do, Jesus. He's been dead four days. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And look in verse 42. He says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here. Why? That they may believe that you sent me. Man, Romans 2 says, the loving kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. And here, as Jesus is mourning the loss of his friends, seeing the effects of sin and death, he thinks about you and I. It's loving kindness. And he's praised in such a way that we would hear and see and believe. Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, can you just imagine this? What would you be doing? I think I'd be standing there, like, trying to look into the tomb where it's dark and thinking, like, are you kidding me? Who does this guy think he is? Dead men don't simply walk out. And please, roll that stone back, man. It smells. Or maybe some of you might be thinking, man, I really hope this happens. I really love Lazarus. I'd really love to see him again. Or maybe some of you would be sitting there going, man, I know this guy. This is Jesus, the light of the world. I've seen him heal lame men and blind men. I know he can do this. But I don't don't know. I still have my doubts. What, What would you be thinking? What would be going through your mind as you're looking through that tomb, waiting with anticipation? And what happens? He said, Lazarus, come out. And immediately the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen stripes and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And what would your reaction be? Like jumping up and screaming that Lazarus, the man whom you loved and cared for, is alive, that all of your problems have been solved? Would you take your eyes so quickly off Jesus and off of your immediate personal physical need? Would your eyes be on Jesus thinking, wow, who is this man? And I want to believe in him. I want to follow after him. I want to dedicate my life to love him with all my heart, mind, and soul. You see, the amazing thing here is that we have the words of Jesus that he is the light of the world that he is the resurrection and the life. And here with this great miracle, he confirms his words with this mighty work. Why? So that you might believe. In church, a week and a half later, he does even more amazing work. As he goes to the cross, and on that cross, he bears the full weight of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin. He became my lust. He became my pride. He became my anger. He bore the guilt and the shame of my sin. And for my sin, 
the father crushed him. He died. He was buried. And three days later, on his own authority, his own power, for he is the resurrection and the life, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Church, the sad part of this story is that there are many who saw this, and some walked away believing. Some walked away and went, it's a cool story for you all. I don't really need that. And some, in jealousy, hated him even more, and even more so wanted to stone him and put him to death. Where are you? Do you look at the works of Jesus and see that they confirm the words of Jesus, that he is the light of the world, that he is the resurrection and the life? And do you believe? Church, if that is your hope, I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable body will put on imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I rejoice knowing that one day in death I will transition from life to greater life, church. There will dawn a day when this perishable body will put on imperishable. A day when I stand before the Lamb who is slain, not in a broken body, but stand in glory. A day when He shall wipe away every tear, and pain and death shall be no more. Church, that is our hope. Amen? Not that we'll be pain-free in this life now. That is not our greatest need. For what does that matter when it's a drop in the bucket of eternity? No, our hope is to know Him and to be known for, by Him for all eternity. And in Him, experience true life. To believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life is our greatest need. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we are so thankful for your son speaking so clearly to us that he is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him, though they die, shall never die. We shall inherit eternal life. And that life is imperishable and unfading and undefiled. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we thank you that we can come before you as our loving Father, not on the basis of what we've done or accomplished, but on the basis and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and ultimately accomplishing the greatest work of going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins, being buried, and three days later rising again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.